Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, on this Friday, we have some breaking news. The Fulton County District Attorney, whose name is Fannie Willis, is requesting a special grand jury uh, to investigate Donald Trump and his efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. And I'm guessing that uh, those of you who've been following this know that one aspect of that, just one aspect of that, but probably central to her investigation, will be this phone call between Donald Trump, then the president of the United States, and Brad Raffensperger, who is the secretary of state of Georgia. Remember when uh, Trump called up uh, Brad Raffensperger and told him to try to find 11,000 votes somewhere? Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. This is Ryan Germany. No, Dominion has not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having. Well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. So no, look, not. all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, eleven thousand. 780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Yeah, so we'll see what comes of that. Uh, don't expect any uh, a quick trial. We've seen this before. Uh, but it, it, this is all a reminder that uh, the January 6th was, had, had a lot of moving parts. And I think that a lot of people now have a sense that you sort of know what happened on January 6th. But that was the, you know, this violent culmination of this effort to overturn the election that that began in the precincts and the vote counting centers in American towns and cities all over the country on election day, which makes this new book very, very timely. Our guest today, Mark, Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague, uh, veteran journalists and the co-authors of the new book, The Steal, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. Uh, you may recognize the names. Mark Bowden also wrote uh, Black Hawk Down, The Finish, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden, and Guests of the Ayatollah. Uh, and uh, Matthew Teague is the executive producer of the film Our Friend, based on the true story of his family's experience after his wife was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, thank both of you for uh, joining me on the podcast today, both Mark and Matthew. You're welcome. What I think is really interesting about this book is that many of us think that we've heard much of the story of of January 6th and and have had tremendous documentation of, of the top-down efforts to overturn this election. But your book is it really takes it, turns it all upside down. It, it's it's a ground-level narrative of how this effort to steal the election unfolded. You know, on the ground in states like Georgia, Wisconsin, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, in that timeline between November third and twenty, you know, between November third, twenty twenty, and January sixth, and as you point out, the these this earlier stage of this attempt was was led by Trump and his and the coteries around him in these swing states, and was only slightly better organized than the mob, but considerably more calculated and dangerous. And again, you know, because of the January 6th committee, we know a lot more about, you know, the efforts to steal the election in, say, New, New Mexico. But because, of course, the plan 
as outlined, in, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, on the, the John Eastman memo was for Mike Pence to throw out the results of the election from those states because they, you know, they had the electors, because they had competing electors, and uh, Mike Pence didn't go along with it. But what I want to talk about, both Mark and Matthew, are the portraits you paint, and I think this is so crucial, especially looking forward, the portraits you paint of the of the people you describe as the heroes, the the unheralded heroes, the mostly unknown Republicans active in local politics who refused to go along with the Trump lies, lies and, and played a key role in preserving American democracy. So let's talk about these, because if it had not been for a handful of people, some of whose names we know, many of whose names we've never heard of before, this might actually have turned out very differently. You want to just talk about that for a moment about the these these unsung and these are all Republicans who had you know tremendous pressure on them but chose to do the right thing. Mark, well, it is true, Charlie, that um, the Republicans in the various states are the ones who had, I think, probably the greatest pressure put on them because they were, I think, perceived by the Trump organization as potentially weak links in the chain. But, you know, a, a good example is Clint Hickman, who is the chairman or the president of the Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Maricopa County is basically Phoenix. So 90 some percent of the vote in Arizona is Maricopa County. And as the president of the board, Clint, who is a lifelong Republican and a Trump supporter, had the responsibility for running the election. And he took that responsibility very seriously uh, and was intimate with the mechanics of how they conducted the election. So on election night, when it was a surprise to everybody, to Clint, I think more than most, that uh, Arizona went to Joe Biden, uh, Clint was shocked. But then he was even more shocked an hour or so later when Donald Trump came on television and named Maricopa County in particular, as having run a fraudulent rigged election. Well, well, Clint had run it. And, you know, he knew it wasn't fraudulent or rigged. And he came under a tremendous amount of pressure uh, over the next few months, including people demonstrating on the front lawn of his home, calling for his arrest and and, uh, prosecution, some places calling for his execution. Um, he He refused to lie. And, you know, he was, I think, emblematic of a lot of honest Americans in these swing states all over the country. Well, let's talk about some of these people, people like uh, Aaron Van Langeveld, a member of the Michigan Board of State Canvassers, uh, voted to certify the results of the election despite huge pressure from from Trump. Some of the listeners might recall that uh, Tim Alberta did this amazing piece on him back in November um, and at that time, called on people to remember as a, as a hero. So you you write about him in the book. Uh, so tell me the story about Aaron Van Langeveld and and the kind of pressure that he faced on the Michigan uh, State Board of Canvassers uh, to go along with, uh, with 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 the Trump forces. Well, Van Langeveld was a member of a four person panel uh, that would vote whether to certify uh, the the election there in the county that Detroit is in. And two of them are always Democrats and two of them are always Republicans. And there was enormous pressure um, from every direction um, for the Republicans, the two Republicans, to 
not certify the vote, um, particularly because Detroit had a lot of Democratic voters, a lot of minority voters. And uh, his counterpart, the other Republican, abstained um, from the vote. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the most courageous decision, um, but it left Van Langeveld as the only Republican uh, voice. And to his credit, he stood up and said, I'm not going to do this. He gave a very brief uh, speech, if you could even call it a speech. He, he quoted John Adams and said, we're a country of laws, not of men, and we should hold to that today. And he voted to certify the the vote. Now, he's been taken off that board, right, as a result of That's this? Right. With, a lot of these people have paid a price for this. So tell me another story out of Michigan. Um, Cheryl Guy from uh, Antrim County, Michigan, that's that's in the fingertip of the mitten in the far north. There's about 23,000 people there. She had, uh, Cheryl Guy, had worked her way up in the local government, was the county clerk. So um, things kind of went wrong on, on Election Day. Tell, tell me the story of uh, Cheryl Guy. She fits a pattern with Ben Langenveld, all, you know, from Michigan all the way down to Georgia. We find it again and again is that people who have the information, uh, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, most often Republicans in our, our story, um, they hold to the truth, um, even when there is a cost. Um, and in Cheryl Guy's case, she's the county clerk in this small, fairly uh, remote county in Michigan, Antrim County. And as she would say, she's not a tech-savvy person. She was dealing with computers and trying to sort of assemble everything quickly on election night. And she shifted about 3,000 votes from the Trump column to the Biden column on election night. One of those was likely hers because she was a Trump supporter and had voted for him herself. She realized within a few hours the mistake she had made and came forward and and admitted what she had done and said, this was my error. I just didn't understand the computers and I screwed this up. This is on me. But that wasn't good enough because in that span of a few hours, a narrative had caught hold in the Trump campaign that it wasn't a, a human error by this you know, grandmotherly figure in the, in the county building in Antrim County. But there was an, a nefarious plot by the makers of the Dominion machines to switch votes inside the computers. Um, You heard uh, Trump refer to that in the audio you played earlier. Um, And so she became very inconvenient in saying, no, no, this is just something I did wrong, and I'm so sorry, but it's my mistake. And within a short amount of time, there were private jets coming in (laughs) in the night into Antrim County, people turning her office upside down, looking for evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, people calling her names, calling her un-American and not patriotic. And these are people she'd known her whole life, people whose birth certificates she had signed. And so it really, she she paid a serious uh, cost for that. And she's not going to run for that office again. So it's there is there is a price to be paid telling the truth. And I'm grateful for the Americans that, that are willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, this really became kind of ground zero for the attack on the voting machines, right? Because the the Giuliani team essentially descends on the small community and shares the theory that Dominion voting systems was intentionally 
and purposefully designed with inherent er errors to create systematic fraud and influence election results. Now, again, this is kind of crazy stuff, and it's going to be involved in litigation. But Trump himself bought into this, right? I mean, he, he tweeted that the machines and the software were used in 48 counties in Michigan and claimed this casts doubt on the integrity of the entire election in the state of Michigan. So this one woman is standing up saying, no, it was human error. I screwed up. But this becomes the center of the whole Dominion was rigged and there was this deep state plot to steal the election. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, kind of a side note, you know, the, the, the guys who planned to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen yeah. Whitmer, they were <laughs> yeah. from her hometown. I mean, in, in Antrim County, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah, they, yeah, I think they were maybe from a number of different places, but yeah, they sort of assembled there in Antrim County um, and plotted to kidnap the governor. <laughs> You know, uh, Mark, you were on uh, NPR talking about this and the way I understood it was, I mean, so Rudy Giuliani's idea and his folks was basically they were going to seize on any accusation of fraud, no matter how lunatic it was. And then they were going to you know, create this sort of big you know, mass of complaints so that it would be big enough that people would think that there was something wrong with the election. Right. I mean, just you just throw enough stuff against the wall. You have enough stuff going on and you create that fog of doubt. That was kind of the initial strategy. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, uh, Charlie, that was the strategy throughout. And I call it the, the blunderbuss strategy. And mm -hmm. You know, after the colonial era shotgun where you could load anything into it, bits of glass and stone, and it would make a huge blast. But it wasn't accurate at all. And I think that there was never any intention, frankly, by Rudy Giuliani or Trump uh, that any of these accusations could be proved. Uh, they were all over the map. I mean, they were small things. I mean, if you read the actual, you know, legal filings, the things that were included were things like a voter who was treated rudely at a polling place in central Pennsylvania. And then, but the bizarre things like the, the woman in Arizona who we wrote about, Lenny Stone, who saw the signature of Satan in voting spreadsheets. Uh, and then there was a guy in the county next door to where I live here in Pennsylvania who claimed that up to half of the ballots cast in his county were pre-printed Biden ballots, fakes. <laughs> uh, so basically anything that anybody claimed, no matter how easily disproved or ridiculous, was wrapped up in this storm of allegations. And so, as you say, the idea was to throw up enough accusations of fraud, regardless of what they were, so that regular people would look at it and think, well, gee, if so many people are claiming fraud, th th maybe there's something to it. Let's just go back to the sort of the, the the victim and this you know Cheryl Guy, the the election official who had who had made the mistake, who had, who had fessed up, and you describe you know what happened with her. You know she's drinking, she's crying. You know the, the people had turned against her. She's not running for re-election. This is this is an important part of the story. The kinds of threats and pressure on election officials. Because obviously there are a lot of people now who are looking at stories like this and going, I just don't need this in my life. And this is a problem around the country, isn't it? That, that election officials facing this kind of stuff say, I, I just, I, I don't need it. And they are leaving. At the same time, there's a concerted effort to get more of the MAGA types in those jobs. Did you, 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 is, is, I mean, how big a problem is this across the country? 
Well, two things, Charlie. One is, you know, I will say that the only people that Matt and I encountered in researching and reporting this book who were really reluctant to speak were the local officials who had been uh, attacked like this. And they'd been through such a ringer that we were calling then some months after uh, the, the inauguration and after January 6th. And at that point, things were beginning to die down and they just didn't want to draw any more attention to themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. any number of them, as you say, are now backing away from the public service. These are not glamorous jobs. I mean, the kind of jobs that people take to supervise elections or to work at local precincts, uh, become state election officials. And in many cases, they don't even pay anything or they pay so little, nobody really seeks them out. And they're not the most glamorous jobs in the world. They, it's a great deal of tedium. It's a very complex process. So a lot of them are saying, you know, I, I don't need this grief. But by the same token, I think that given the importance that has now been placed on playing those roles locally, just as there are Trumpists who are stepping up to run for these positions or who are being appointed to them, my suspicion is that uh, more decent people will step mm-hmm. up seeing that it's important for somebody who has, you know, isn't there for partisan political reasons, but just thinks that elections ought to be run honestly. Hmm. Let's go to Wisconsin, um, because you profile um, somebody that I actually know. Uh, you profile Roan Bishop, who was uh, the chairman of the Fond du Lac County Republican Party. And you, you note that he was so Republican that he named his daughters Reagan and Maggie, for Maggie uh, Thatcher, which, which of course is true. And, you know, I mean, obviously, um, Bishop was so familiar with the process, you know, he he knew that it would be very, very hard to fix an election. But I mean, he is he this guy is a hardcore Republican. Um, I, I, I will say that uh, it's, it's one of those stories about what's happened to the party, because I know that he was very anti-Trump, very much so, but then went along with it. And after a while, um, I mean, again, this was somebody that I that I knew for a long time and. And then I see his profile picture is him posing in front of a Trump-Pence sign in his yard. So what role did he play in the election? Because, of course, the grassroots in Wisconsin has gone all in on all of this. And there are these legislative investigations that are going on. There's even a state legislator who is proposing to decertify Wisconsin. So what did Roan Bishop uh, do and say after the election? Well, Ron actually was uh, sort of the primary uh, Trump supporter in his hometown. He actually put out hundreds of Trump signs in his yard so that neighbors could come by and take them and put them in their own yards. He held clinics and workshops for Republican canvassers for Trump to give them marching orders for going out in the community to recruit support. Uh, but by the same token, he did run afoul of Trump during the election because the president had begun to discourage Republicans from voting by mail. And in fact, as Ron knew well, in Wisconsin, those mail votes were going to be very important in the election. In fact, the Republican Party, the state Republican Party, had sent out a mailing to all Republicans in the state urging them to vote by mail and to vote early and with a, with a picture of Trump on the front of it with two thumbs up. So when Trump started saying that people shouldn't vote by mail, that it was rigged and fraudulent, uh, Ron actually pushed back. And that was the first sign, you know, that uh, he would come under attack. And he did actually come under attack during the election for what he thought was trying to help Trump win. 
Uh, and then, of course, after the election, when these allegations surfaced that the election was fraudulent, Ron knew that this wasn't true, and he pushed back against it and continues to, and took a lot of abuse for it. But happily, at the end of our story, we see Ron um, is reelected to his uh, post. And you quote him as saying to other fellow Republicans, dude, I voted for the same guy you did. I'm just telling you it was not stolen. These ballots were not illegally cast. Okay, then you tell the story of Ruby Freeman, an election worker down in Fulton County, Georgia, who was singled out by Trump. Um, He called her a professional vote scammer and a political operative. He named her. This is so weird. Trump names her more than a dozen times in that call with uh, Brad Raffensperger, and she's targeted with accusations of fraud. She gets death threats. So talk to me about her. How did she get into the, the crosshairs of the president of the United States? Well, Ruby Freeman's daughter, Shay Moss, uh, has worked for a long time on staff as a, uh, at the Fulton County electoral staff there. And so Ms. Freeman normally makes her living selling handbags uh, at the local mall. She's an older lady, um, and she thought she would help out during election season. She would go down where her daughter works uh, at the State Farm Arena and help uh, sort envelopes and and count the vote. Um, And for her trouble, um, she was treated to stunning uh, online harassment and real-life harassment uh, people showing up at her house late at night, people threatening her mother, <laughs> who is quite elderly, um, uh, making sort of legal threats of indictments, things like that, bizarre episodes. And uh, she was just someone who wanted to show up and do, you know, the sort of tedious work that that most people really don't care to do. She was going to help out with it. And then in the end, to have her story taken up into the internet <laughs> machinery and quoted by the most powerful man in the world yeah, um, as someone surreal. who should be looked at for criminal charges um, was a really sort of upside down uh, moment and uh, really upset her uh, personally, obviously. Um, so it is frightening um, for people like that who who just want to help out. So you guys broke the story about how she she was the woman approached by the publicist for Kanye West and was told to confess to Trump's fraud accusations or she was going to jail. I think some, some of us have seen the video of that. What was that about? Really strange episode. I was <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> digging through some uh, police uh, reports yeah. from Cobb County uh, next door to, to Atlanta and came across the name of a, a someone who, who had come from Chicago to Georgia. And in the police report, it said something to the effect that you know she had come on behalf of an, of an important personage in Chicago. And I thought, who is this? And it, she's a publicist who was working in some capacity for Kanye West and came down and knocked on Ruby Freeman's door uh, late at night and said uh, she wanted to talk with her. Ms. Freeman agreed to meet her at the, the local police precinct with an escort to hear her out. And what the uh, the publicist said was that she was aware of an indictment that was imminent, which there was not, um, but that she said there was, and that the, the way for Ms. Freeman to get out of it was to essentially confess that there had been illegal doings uh, during the vote count and that uh, she would help her arrange immunity 
um, if she would only make this confession. And to her credit, Ms. Freeman, in, in the face of this enormous frightening pressure, someone who's just a regular person, not a celebrity, not a politician, faced it down and said, you know what I want? I want an escort back home. And the police took her back home and she said, no, thank you to that. Um, so she was, she was under enormous, enormous pressure in strange forms. So was Kanye West, I'm trying to get my head around this because I've seen the video of this. The, the, was Kanye West involved in this? Was the publicist just freelancing? I, how does this something like, I mean, I'm just trying to get some sense of all the moving parts of all of this and, and, and this cast, the weird cast of characters. Were they working You're with right. Giuliani? Were they working on their own what? Do you know? It's a, weird is the right word. It's unclear sort of who is aware of what and making orders and things like that. I asked uh, Trevian Cutie, the, uh, that's her name, Trevian Cutie, the publicist, um, was she paid to go yeah. do what she did? And she said, no, no one paid her, that she just went because she felt it was the patriotic thing to do. Um, patriotic is a word that, uh, as we write in the book, has, has sort of morphed and taken on some new overtones. But she felt like it was the patriotic duty was to go and, and put pressure on this low-level election worker in Georgia. So we're now seeing, and as more and more documents come out of the January 6th committee, we're, we're seeing how concerted this effort was. The fake electoral certificates, uh, the pressure on legislators, um, the, you know, the various court actions and, and everything. I mean, so, you know, I mean, we, we know these names, you know, Rudy Giuliani and the Eastman memo and the, you know, my pillow guy, Mike Lindell and, you know, the crazy lawyers, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and all of this stuff. Your, your book really focuses on the story uh, of the people who actually stopped this. And, and it was, as you, as you write, it was stopped by the integrity of hundreds of obscure Americans from every walk of life, state and local officials, judges, and election workers. So here's the key question. Will those people be around next time? Will there be a Brad Raffensperger in Georgia? Will there be an Aaron Vandegeld uh, in Michigan? Will there be, you know, a Governor Ducey in Arizona or the Republican officials in Maricopa County? Or are they going to be purged from the party and replaced by other people? Because I, I, I think the, the, the point you make in this book is so important that ultimately it was these Republicans scattered around the country who acted with integrity that stopped this from happening. The question is, what about next time? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I'm optimistic, um, Charlie, because I think the important thing to note is that this concerted effort in 2020 failed everywhere. They didn't convince any state legislature to set aside the vote count. They didn't convince any judge, including judges who were who had run as Republicans or who had, in some cases, been appointed even by Trump. Not a single case succeeded. So, you know, I do think that it is a, it is alarming that one of our political parties seems bent on somehow weighting the scales in the next election. Uh, for their candidate, whether that be Trump or somebody else. But I think it's going to be very hard because I think the American people are more honest than Donald Trump and the people around him. And so even if you do, for instance, get 
a Trumpist elected as a precinct captain in a community in Pennsylvania or Michigan. They have to work alongside their neighbors, all the other people who volunteer and work on the election, and they couldn't do anything by themselves. So I just think they're going to come up against people's general um, reluctance to be that dishonest. The one area where I do think Congress should act and could would be to make it harder uh, to interfere with the certification of election results, because that's you know where the political pressure was placed in these various states. And I do think that that's a vulnerability, but I don't think there's too many people in America who would argue that the certification of electors shouldn't reflect the actual vote. Yeah. So, Matt, you you gave an interview to NPR, and and you again described the theme of the book that many of the heroes of the book, the people who stood up and said, "No, we're going to tell the truth," were conservative people, even Trump supporters themselves. So, it's clear that the line between truth and lie is something that runs through every human heart, and that it's not just a matter of partisan politics. And that gives me hope for the country. I very much hope you are right. However, the <laughs> world since January sixth. Because you, you describe this, these acts of integrity that took place in, after the election. Since then, though, I'm looking around the country and I'm seeing 71% of Republicans who think the election was illegitimate. 140 members of the House voted to you know, not accept the electoral votes of, say, either Arizona or Pennsylvania, some, something like, like that. Uh, just today, we find out that Trump himself sent a copy of Molly Hemingway's book uh, to all of the Republicans in the House of Representatives saying uh, Congress should not have certified the election on January 6th. So I, I wonder whether what you're describing is sort of could possibly be, I'm look, I am rooting for you guys to be right, but whether or not you're describing kind of a last stand of Republican integrity before this wave hits, because the only people that are standing up now are people like Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, maybe Brad Raffensperger. They may be all gone by the end of this year out of office, because that's that's where the energy in the Republican Party is. The energy in the Republican Party is not to embrace the people you write about in the book. The energy in the Republican Party is to purge these people, isn't it? Yeah, and there's sort of two questions at hand. One is, is um, their vote integrity? Um, when you go and, and, and cast your ballot, can you feel confident that it will be counted? And I think we come down pretty squarely on the, the side of optimism there. I think the system is strong, it's decentralized, and it would be very difficult to perpetrate a, a massive fraud. The other question, though, is, is there a strain of authoritarianism creeping into both the electorate and the, our leaders? That's more of an open question to me, and, and I think that we'll, we'll have to see in time how people behave. It's a very unstable moment in our history. Yeah, no, and, and as you described, of course, in the last several days, uh, this, the Senate killed uh, two voting rights bills, but but there is at least some hint that there's the possibility of bipartisan legislation that would amend the Electoral Count Act, number one, and, and then would provide more uh, protection for election workers, which seems to go directly to some of the things that you're writing about, that um, to deal with the 
with the, the the pressure and the threats against election officials because I mean that's that's a backdoor way of changing the entire political culture of the country if in fact people are too scared to do it. I mean most of these people, and again this comes through in in your book. I mean these are these are act, just just average citizens. These these are not people who are who go into these jobs with their hair on fire. You know these these are people who who uh, you know live in the communities who've never been involved in these kinds of controversies. And I just, I, I'm, I'm wondering about the kind of person that will be willing to go through this in the future. Well, I think that it, it's fair to say that timid people will back away or people who've maybe been burned already and don't feel that it's worth it. Uh, but I also think that people will be emboldened by it. Uh, you know, I think not, this is not a nation of cowards <laughs> and people who realize how important this is, I, I feel will step up. I've seen it happen in my own community. I'm sure it's happening around the country. And I also, even though there are these polls that say that, uh, you know, that 70% or more of Republicans think it was a invalid election, frankly, I think if you had taken a poll among Democrats, probably there was one, um, you know, 12 months, six months after uh, Trump was sworn in as yeah. president, you probably would have gotten similar numbers saying, only what they were saying then was, there's something wrong with the system, we need to get rid of the Electoral College. In this case, you know, in that case, Trump had won the Electoral College vote, but lost the popular vote. In this case, Trump lost both the Electoral College vote and the popular vote. So the attack is on the electoral system itself. So I, th I think that uh, what you're seeing and reflected in that poll is the disappointment of many Republicans that Joe Biden was elected president. And frankly, I think, you know, I have a certain amount of faith in, in the American people. I think that the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th, no matter how partisans or radicals try to spin it one way or the other, was something that horrified most Americans, Democrats and Republicans. I can't believe that um, any large numbers of people uh, are going to be recruited to the ranks of Trumpism by what they saw on January 6th. So is one of the takeaways of the book, uh, that we would hope it would be a takeaway from the book, would be that by highlighting the heroes that stopped the steal, that you're encouraging other people to be heroic, that that by highlighting these sort of unsung folks who uh, stood by the truth, that you might embolden other people to do the same thing. Is, is that one of the things that you're kind of hoping to accomplish with this book? Well, I hope it happens, but that certainly wasn't our intent. I mean, our only intent, Charlie, was mm -hmm. to try to understand exactly what happened in these six swing states. And frankly, it came as a bit of a surprise to Matt and I that we ended up writing about all these Republican profiles and courage. That was not a thing that we had in mind. But having said that, I mean, that is the story that we found. And to the extent that that story encourages other people to behave in an honest and patriotic way, yeah, I, I, I hope that it does have that effect. You know, you, you, you write about the key states, and we don't know what's going to happen with this Fulton County grand jury in, investigation, but um, I don't know about you, but I, I find the pol Republican politics in Arizona to be absolutely fascinating. The president, the former president was down there. Um, he's clearly decided that Arizona is ground zero. But the role of the Maricopa County Republicans never ceases to amaze me how strong they have been. Uh, against overwhelming pressure from members of their of their own party, 
and how they have refuted, you know, these charges over and over and over again. Uh, you know, how they have pushed back against the cyber ninjas. There's a normal human reaction, which is, okay, we, we've stated our position, but let's move on. That hasn't happening in Arizona. I mean, this is this is full out, almost, you know, civil war. I hate to use the term civil war, between the Republicans who are just not willing to bow the knee to the big lie. I mean, that, that seems to be the... The, wh where this internal Republican fight seems to be the most alive. Do you agree? Is there someplace else where it's also on fire like this? I think what you're seeing in Arizona is an information war is between yes. Republicans. Correct. Yeah. Some Republicans absorb what they see on Fox News or, or uh, OANN or, or whatever other outlet, and they take that as true, whereas others are involved in the process and can say, hold on, I was helping count those votes. I was opening those envelopes. I was running that polling place, whatever it is. And they have the information before them. They have the truth. And what we found again and again was that once people lock on to true information, they hold on and they'll stand up against lies. And you see it in Arizona, you see it in Georgia, you see it in Michigan, you see it in Pennsylvania. Um, again and again, uh, people with the information will, will stay true to it. And that, that does give me some hope, um, is that if we can just move the information <laughs> into people's minds, they'll hold on to it. But we're in a very difficult climate for, for that right now. Yeah, I think, Charlie, if I can also chip in there, I, I think that the, the fight in Arizona, and it's also true, I know, in Pennsylvania, also boils down to a rural versus urban struggle. I mean, Arizona, you tend to think of the state government as being a larger, more powerful entity than Maricopa County, and you're wrong. Maricopa County mm -hmm. is by far the most important political entity uh, mm -hmm. in the state of Arizona. They, they, if you look at the map, I think 90% or more of the votes in the state of Arizona come from Maricopa County. So, you know, what you're seeing, and this battle has been raging in Arizona, I know it's true in Pennsylvania, between more sparsely populated rural areas, which tend to be more conservative and Republican and tend to be more Trumpist, and the sort of urban, suburban centers of population where you have a better educated citizenry, more of a tendency to vote Democratic, or even for their Republican uh, voters to be more moderate. So I think there's, you know, larger political demographics behind all this. The book is The Steal, The Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It, the extraordinary stories of these unsung heroes of people who prevented uh, the overthrow of the 2020 election. Mark Bowden and uh, Matthew Teague, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.